Okay, so the first of our four uh, uh, perspectives on personality to address is the psychodynamic perspective. And probably the reason this one comes first is, um, is that uh, of our different perspectives in this chapter, this is the one that's been around for the longest. Uh, so it was one of the first to emerge within psychology. Um, and um, uh, I've told you a few times during the semester that, um, that later on in the semester, I'll tell you about Freud's theory. You know, because a lot of people associate Sigmund Freud with psychology, um, and um, you know we've uh, we've approached his uh, some aspects of his theory a few times. You know, when we looked at unconscious mind, when we looked at dreams, um, even even early on in the semester when we looked at history of psychology, because he's important historically. Well, here we are, late in the semester, uh, where this is the time where I'll give you um, the most complete uh, presentation of Freudian psychodynamic theory that we'll do, at least in this course. Um, <clears throat> so let's see, uh, first a couple of things on terms. Um, uh, your textbook uh, will sometimes, I think, use the terms psychodynamic and psychoanalytic interchangeably. Um, now, they actually mean slightly different things, and Freud really wouldn't like uh, using them um, them interchangeably. But um, but a lot of um, a lot of people will kind of now use the term psychoanalytic uh, for Freudian theory in general, whereas Freud would have probably preferred to use the term psychodynamic for the overall theory and psychoanalytic more related to the um, the therapy approach that um, that was drawn from it, psychoanalysis. Um, but let's not worry too much about those differences right now. Uh, just, um, just if you see the term psychodynamic or the term psychoanalytic, I want you to think of Sigmund Freud. Um, uh, what I'll describe to you here for the most part is going to be essentially classic Freud theory. Um, uh, then later on, we'll look at um, how other people have um, uh, contributed to that theory a little bit more recently uh, since Freud, but their contributions are really more changes in emphasis of things more so than uh, complete change in the theory. So, you know, this is pretty much Freud's theory, right? Okay, um, <clears throat> Freud. Uh, Sigmund Freud was a neurologist. He was not a psychologist. Uh, he was a neurologist uh, working in Vienna, Austria, um, in the late 1800s um, and into the 20th century. Right? Um, let's see. Uh, Freud was particularly interested in when patients had physical symptoms, like neurological kinds of symptoms, that didn't seem to have any physical causes. And so a lot of times he um, assumed that those, phys those physical symptoms were due to mental causes and not physical causes. And he attributed a lot of that to things going on in the person's unconscious mind. Okay, Freud believed that uh, all people have three parts to their personality, um, the id, the ego, and the superego. And um, that uh, these three parts all operate according to a different set of rules, uh, a different agenda, as it were. Um, the id is uh, operates according to the pleasure principle. Um, the it is essentially ultimately um, uh, selfish in that it's interested in getting what it wants uh, and it's not good at waiting. Uh, it's not good at taking turns. Um, it's not good at delaying things. Um, <clears throat> it wants pleasure. It would like to avoid pain, but mostly it wants pleasure and it wants it now. Um, the second part of the personality is the ego. The ego operates according to the reality principle where essentially uh, what it tries to do is um, meet some of the id's needs within the constraints of reality. 
with the realization that if a person, you know, were to act according to the pleasure principle all the time and grab whatever pleasure they wanted whenever they wanted it, that that would get them into trouble. And so um, with other people, with the law, you know, all kinds of stuff. And uh, so the ego essentially tries to temper the id and uh, get it to um, uh, live within the constraints of reality. Uh, so it's kind of like a manager, um, uh, trying to manage those things. Um, the uh, the third part of the personality, according to Freud, is the superego. And the superego is most like what we might think of as our conscience. Um, it's what he thought of as the moral center of our personality. Um, Freud thought that, um, you know, the people who taught us about the people who teach us about right and wrong, usually mom and dad, maybe some other people, but um, uh, those people get um, internalized as part of our own personality. And so that essentially they're that little voice that tells us, you know, what's right and wrong and also makes us feel guilty when we violated some of those things. So these three parts of the personality, the id, the ego, and the superego, Freud said that we all have them, um, but that in a healthy person, they're in a balance, in an essentially a dynamic equilibrium where, where they're always moving and they're always, you know, elbowing each other for control in a sense, but that, um, that none of them overshadows the other, so that we're essentially in some balance. And in fact, that's where the term psychodynamic came from, this idea of a dynamic equilibrium among these three parts of the personality. However, you got to realize that in any particular situation, these three parts of your personality would be giving you different kinds of advice on what to do, right? Um, uh, giving you different uh, guidance on what to do. But again, Freud thought that in healthy people, none of them ended up overshadowing the others. He believed that these different parts of the personality exist at different levels of awareness. Um, and so um, let's see if we go... Uh, Skip the next slide for now. Go to um, slide number six. Uh, Freud described the um, uh, the personality as like an iceberg, um, with um, with the uh, idea here that um, uh, if you see an iceberg floating on the ocean, all you're seeing is a very small. A fraction of the actual iceberg. The actual iceberg is much bigger down below the surface. You're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. And essentially, Freud um, used that analogy to say that what we are aware of in our conscious mind is only a very small tip of the iceberg, but that most of the important stuff is going to be well below the level of consciousness, and so that they're existing at an unconscious level. Now, this diagram that I gave you with the iceberg um, makes it a little bit more complex than it needs to be by introducing a level between conscious and unconscious, a pre-conscious. It's actually not crucial to this um, description here. Pre-conscious essentially just means uh, things that aren't in your conscious awareness right now, but they could be, like, uh, you know, the name of your um, uh, kindergarten teacher. I don't know, uh, that wasn't in your conscious mind a moment ago, but if you recalled it out of your memory and brought it into your conscious, then it, then you had access to it, right? So it was in your pre-conscious. Ultimately, though, the difference here is, um, is that um, with the unconscious mind, you don't have access to that stuff. Uh, no matter how much you try, you can't just pull information out of your unconscious mind. And if you notice, most of the id according to Freud, is in the unconscious mind, so that um, most of uh, some of those kinds of primal impulses about satisfying our own sort of animalistic wants and needs and desires is going to be at that unconscious level.
Uh, extending up into the conscious level is some of the ego and some of the superego. So notice that would mean that um, all we can really know about ourselves, according to Freud, I'm going to stop saying according to Freud, <laughs> because you know this whole thing is just according to Freud, right? It's not according to Mike. <laughs> but um, the, um, <laughs> the uh, all we can know about our mind is part of our ego and part of our superego, right? According to the model. Now, um, uh, let's see, um, if we go back to uh, slide number five, I don't know why those are in that order, but uh, go to slide number five. Um, uh, Freud believed that, um, that essentially all human behavior was motivated um, by two basic um, uh, human motivations of sex and aggression, um, uh, and that he thought that these forces built up essentially in our unconscious mind, in our ego. And... Um, uh, Freud would say, and did say essentially, that any human behavior, no matter how complex it looked on the surface, whether it's, you know, helping an old lady cross the street or, um, you know, conducting a symphony, I don't know, um, he would say that ultimately he could trace that back to an ultimate motivation, an initial motivation for sex or aggression. Now, if you want to be more poetic about that, you could think of that as a creative impulse and a destructive impulse, kind of a yin-yang sort of thing. Um, but Freud was pretty uh, consistent in talking about these as being sexual and aggressive uh, kinds of um, uh, impulses or instincts. Now, the thing that he thought was that um, uh, these uh, instincts would build up in pressure in our unconscious mind, uh, and that they would need to be released in some way. They would need to be expressed or vented. They need to be let off in some way, or else they're going to cause problems. So in his basic model, what he said is that um, over time, these sexual and aggressive impulses build up in the unconscious mind to where soon they get so much power that they threaten to become conscious. Um, they threaten to become so powerful that they're going to impinge into our conscious mind. However, the whole reason he believes that we put them in our unconscious mind is because they're dirty, ugly, scary stuff that we really wouldn't like about ourselves. So we try to push them down into the unconscious mind. But them threatening to become conscious is what he thought caused anxiety. Uh, that, um, that essentially that caused uh, people to become anxious. That caused the ego to kick in with some sort of strategy in order to allow this unconscious these unconscious forces to be dispelled in some way uh, without harming the individual. And these strategies are things that Freud called defense mechanisms. Now, um, defense mechanisms are a crucial part of understanding what he meant by this, um, this whole theory. And so if you go to uh, slide number seven, there's a table that I lifted from your textbook on some of the common defense mechanisms that Freud talked about. Think of a defense mechanism as a strategy, as a strategy that would be used by the ego in order to deal with some of these unconscious forces, in order to allow them to be vented or expressed or let off in some way that's going to cause less harm to the person themselves. Now, <clears throat> and so when it came right down to it, uh, these um, defense mechanisms would be the theoretical link between what's happening in a person's unconscious mind, which is ultimately, you know, unobservable, and what they're actually saying, doing, thinking in their uh, real life and conscious mind, right? So these were um, important part of this theory.
Now, um, we don't need to spend a lot of time on, um, on looking at different defense mechanisms, but I do want to give you some illustration of how this whole thing is, was believed to work. Uh, let's see, um, if we look at uh, repression as a defense mechanism, um, the idea of repression is just trying to squash that stuff, trying to force it back into the unconscious mind. Um, notice that that would imply that there probably is going to be some problem with that uh, stuff later on, that, you know, that's only a temporary fix. Um, displacement. That's an easy one to give an example of. Let's say that you are uh, uh, angry with your boss and you have some violent impulses towards your boss and you want to hit that guy. But your ego says, you know what, it wouldn't be a good idea to hit your boss. You'd lose your job or you'd get in trouble or whatever. And so maybe you can get rid of that anger in some other way by displacement. Maybe you go home and you kick your cat or something like that. Now don't kick your cat, that's not good. But I hope you can see that as an example of displaced anger, essentially allowing you to get rid of that force um, uh, without any real harm to yourself, right? Um, so uh, defense mechanisms are strategies that the ego would use. Now, um, <clears throat> uh, so what Freud would often do in, um, in psychoanalysis, in therapy with people, is that he was really interested in what was in their unconscious mind. He thought that was the thing that he really needed to understand in order to understand people. But he couldn't directly access their unconscious mind, you know, and so he developed ways of trying to figure out what is likely to be in their unconscious mind. And that's why he was so big on interpreting dreams, right? So if people would describe their dreams, and he would try to figure out what he thought that meant, what that represented in their unconscious mind. Now, of course, like we saw with dream interpretation, there's actually no way to know whether he was right or wrong about that uh, in any specific instance. It's all just sort of an assumption, right? Um, <clears throat> well, um, he would also uh, look at people's behavior and what they say and do and think and try to trace it back according to what kind of defense mechanism that might represent um, <clears throat> and do this whole process backwards to get at what must be in their unconscious mind. Oh, so you say you um, uh, are missing your mother. I don't know. Uh, well, that maybe means something that you're using this particular defense mechanism, which would mean that this particular thing is what's in your unconscious mind. Right? Well, the problem with that, of course, is that depending upon which of the defense mechanisms Freud sort of stumbles upon in that moment in time, uh, he's liable to reach a different conclusion about what's in a person's unconscious mind, and there's no way to tell what's right or wrong, right? I mean, we've even got a defense mechanism in there where people do the opposite of what their unconscious mind says. Uh, a defense mechanism that Freud called reaction formation, where somebody acts the opposite way uh, as they supposedly feel deep down inside. Um, you know, so um, they did this a lot for a while in, uh, in Freudian style psychoanalysis. Um, um, but... Um, uh, but we realize that um, that that's not really a uh, scientific or uh, objective kind of thing to do. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, <clears throat> Freud believed that we all uh, develop through some stages of personality development. So if we go to slide number eight, um, slide, slide number eight looks at uh, Freud's psychosexual stages of development. Now, 
In a previous chapter this semester, we looked at a lot of different stage theories that look at how people develop over time, right, in our chapter on human development. Um, uh, I guess potentially this theory could have been placed in that chapter with those, because that's kind of what Freud thought it was. It was a way of uh, trying to explain how people's personality develops over time. However, this one really doesn't have much scientific evidence to support it, um, and so it makes more sense to kind of talk about it more just in terms of Freudian ideas rather than, you know, uh, developmental theories. Um, Freud said that we all go through these five stages of personality development, and he called them psychosexual stages because he said that they were motivated primarily by, those, by unconscious sexual impulses. Um, and, uh, and the stages uh, are the oral, anal, phallic, latency, and genital stages. Now, um, four out of five of these um, <clears throat> are named for erogenous zones. Uh, an erogenous zone was a place, a physical location on the person's body, where Freud said that the person um, uh, derives their primary focused uh, sexual physical pleasure. Uh, so a place on their body. And, um, and he said that the, there were different parts of the body that were important in sexual uh, pleasure at different ages or stages. And so to a large extent, that's where a lot of these sexual stages got their names. Uh, in the oral stage, he said um, that, a, that uh, uh, is um, for kids uh, up to about um, age one or one and a half, uh, so essentially our infancy stage of development, he said that they're primarily motivated by oral needs, that they're going to want to put stuff in their mouth and explore stuff with their mouth. But Freud really talked about this in terms of the child deriving pleasure, even sexual pleasure, from um, you know putting things in their mouth. He thought that oral pleasure was centered. Uh, for toddlers, age two to three, something like that, he said they were in the anal stage, uh, where they get um, uh, primary pleasure by being able to hold on to their feces or expel their feces, where they're starting to get control. Excuse me, starting to get control of that. Uh, the phallic stage was next, uh, ages four and five. Um, phallic here refers to a penis in a little boy or a clitoris in a little girl. Um, and, uh, and he said that, uh, Freud said that um, little kids, four and five, uh, do start to realize that those parts of their body can give them some pleasure. Um, uh, and they might do some self-exploration there. Um, but they also start, that's also where kids start to develop um, uh, romantic and sexual feelings about other people. However, at this stage, those other people are their parents. Um, uh, so Freud thought that little boys in the phallic stage go through something called an Oedipal complex, uh, where they sexually desire their mom. Um, uh, little girls would be going through an Electra complex, where they sexually desire their dad. Freud said that we all went through these stages, but that most of us <clears throat> um, would have successfully resolved those complexes by realizing that we can't have sex with our parent. Um, and so what we're liable to, what we're going to want to do is to essentially um, uh, copy our same-sex parent and be like them. Uh, so essentially, well, I can't, uh, you know, be in a relationship with mom, so I'll make myself as much like dad as I can in order to get somebody later on who's like mom or, <clears throat> or vice versa for little girls. Uh, anyway, uh, so he said that we all, uh, we usually resolve those kind of complexes, right? 
Um, <clears throat> now, uh, the, um, the next stage for Freud was the latency stage, where in the latency stage, um, roughly from ages 6 to 12, something like that, this is the one of the five that isn't named for an erogenous zone, because Freud thought that actually those um, uh, sexual impulses weren't real strong at that age. He thought they were latent, they were undercover. Um, uh, and, um, and he thought that kids tended to focus there on uh, peer relationships and uh, school performance and stuff like that, right? Then, though, once they hit puberty, then they go into the genital stage, and the genital stage uh, for Freud is the last um, stage that we would go through. And essentially, um, he would say that uh, at the genital stage is when people, uh, for the first time, become sexually attracted to other humans that they're not related to. Whew, that's a relief. Um, and, uh, and that people are, for the first time, capable of mature sexuality, right? Now, <clears throat> um, there's so much wrong with this theory that uh, it's hard to know where to start. Um, however, um, some of the reasons that I'm telling you about this is because this was mainstream medicine, I guess, sort of for a while. Um, uh, in Freud's day and for the next 80 to 100 years, uh, people often thought of this as the way that it really was. And so, um, uh, you know, so even um, books that were written for how to raise babies and stuff like that and how to raise children, a lot of those people relied on um, uh, advice um, that, um, that would go back to stuff related to Freud's theories here, right? And a lot of it was wrong. Now, Freud thought that, um, that each of us goes through all of those psychosexual stages, but that things can go wrong, um, such that a person become essentially can become essentially stuck or fixated at a particular stage. If there's too much or too little gratification of the um, erogenous zone at that age. So, for example, if somebody in the oral stage, a baby, um, uh, is not allowed oral stimulation or is allowed too much oral stimulation, um, then, um, then they're going to develop what Freud called an oral fixation, essentially getting stuck at that stage. And even later on, even into adulthood, uh, having these leftover oral needs, in a sense. And, um, and Freud described those kinds of things in oral behaviors, um, uh, as um, um, essentially uh, oral type behaviors. For Freud, could have been just about a lot of things: um, uh, biting your fingernails, talking too much, excessive eating, uh, chomping on gum all the time, smoking cigarettes. Uh, a lot of those things he thought were um, were expressions of fixation at the oral stage, right? Uh, people could become fixated at the anal stage, um, an anal fixation. Um, you still do hear sometimes uh, people use this term. Uh, they'll say, um, why are you being so anal about this? Uh, meaning that, um, you know, you're too focused on the details and um, uh, the um, minutiae of it, and you're missing the big picture. And that's where it comes from, actually. It came from Freud's ideas about anal fixations. All right, that's enough on that. Um, <clears throat> um, let me stop there, and I'll come back uh, in a um, in the next segment with um, other psychodynamic theorists, and then we'll do our critical analysis of this theory.